Hello and welcome to The Bitten Word. I'm Ashley. And I'm Christine. And today, we're venturing back into Disney. We're going to be talking about the 1991 film Beauty and the Beast. It's sad that you have to differentiate. (laughs) Well, I know, but, you know, Beauty and the Beast is like a super iconic, super old story from like the 1750s or something like that. Um, And there have been a lot of renditions of Beauty and the Beast. Um, I don't know. I'm still thinking of just like the cartoon one and then like the live action Disney one, which was just bad. um, So yes, we are going to be talking about that today as well as making cheese souffle and the infamous gray stuff. So uh, you have most likely seen this movie. I really hope you've seen this movie. Um, I have a memory of going to the movie theater to watch this for a birthday party uh, when it came out. And so I was like six and I had already seen it. And I was sitting next to another little girl. And at the very beginning when it says, for who could ever learn to love a beast? I turned to her and I was like, Belle, that's who. And I like totally <laughs> spoiled the movie for her. I'm going to wreck it. That's funny. I, I wasn't even um, alive. No, you weren't. But I, and then we went back to her house afterward and her dad was like singing along with Gaston. Like he already knew all the words. So they must have either put that song out or had released the soundtrack ahead of time and he'd purchased it because he knew all the words. And that is how I learned what the word expectorating means, just like everybody else in existence. I like that. I like hearing the songs that dads latch on to. Yeah. (laughs) Because I feel like moms just know them all because we're watching them like ad nauseum, right? Yes. Um, Okay. So if for whatever reason you have not seen the Disney movie, Uh, Here is your synopsis. So Belle is an outcast in her village because everyone thinks her father's crazy and that she's weird, mostly just because she reads. Um, Seriously, that seems to be like the only problem that they have with her. (laughs) I love this. It's that I'm not like other girls because I read and I have a brain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Gaston, the town lug, wants to marry her mostly and only because she's pretty uh he doesn't really know her and he doesn't care about her but he thinks she's beautiful and that makes her the best in his words but she longs for more than that when her father goes missing she goes into the woods and finds him locked up in a seemingly deserted castle she soon discovers that rather than being empty it is inhabited by a cranky beast who has been cursed by an enchantress Uh, For this curse to be broken, he must learn to love someone and have them love him in return before the last petal falls off of an enchanted rose. So Belle then takes the place of her father and says that she will stay with the beast as long as her father can go. And during the time that she is in the castle, they do uh, learn to love each other. When Gaston finds out about this and he comes to the castle to kill the beast, he instead is killed in true Disney fashion where he falls to his death so you can't actually see anything. The beast is also hurt, but Belle, right before the last petal falls, 
It's like hitting one second left on the timer, right? She says, I love you. And the spell is broken. And he magically into turns into the, the ugliest, ugliest prince. Disney prince. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said he, that. He shoots light out of his fingers and his toes and I'd always, that scene has always kind of weirded me out. Um, I've talked before about Prince Adam's fat calves on this show. Yeah. <laughs> we still maintain that he is the ugliest Disney prince. Convince us why he's not. And yeah, that is it. Happy ending. Everything's good. And yes, yes, yes. So this this movie actually has some really interesting, you know, little trivia tidbits attached to it. So I, I find it interesting in this movie in particular that the more famous voices are the smaller characters. So Paige O'Hara did um, Belle and she was a Broadway actress at the time. And so nobody really knew who she was. Whereas now every, they get like famous people, like, like everybody knows who they are. Right. Yeah. Uh, she was more unknown in like everyday circles. What's bizarre to me is that in the Broadway show, she's played by the girl who plays Meg in Hercules. Yeah, it that is true. Me. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is true. Um, and actually, she does a really great job in the musical. But so, and then Robbie Benson, who I have never heard of before or since, does the Beast's voice. And I'll talk about why he got cast in a second. But the famous voices are Lumiere is played by Jerry Orbach. And you're like, Jerry Orbach isn't famous. Never heard of and, him. Okay. You'll know who he is now. He's like the main detective on Law and Order. The older guy with the gray hair. Oh, on regular really? Law and Order. Yes. That's funny. That, that is him. And he used to be um, a big Broadway actor. He was in the Fantastics. If you listen to the uh, original off-Broadway recording, he's um, on there. Um, and so, yeah, I know it's like Jerry Orbach, who's that? Uh, but you know who he is. <laughs> then Cogsworth was David Ogden Steers, who I know is one of Christine's favorites. I love David Ogden Steers so much. I was so sad when he died. And he also voiced the prologue. Did you know that? I think I did know that. And he's been in a couple of other movies. I think we talked about him in our Hunchback episode. He was the deacon. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, and then, of course, Angela Lansbury was Mrs. Potts. Legend. So, yes, definitely. Um, also, another Broadway legend. So, they actually got a whole lot of Broadway people um, for this. And they kind of used to because Jody Benson, who voiced Ariel, was also um, a big Broadway star. And I, I think they kind of used to go more into that because I don't know if actors like in Hollywood did a whole lot of singing and there wasn't that same crossover as much, I feel like, in the 80s and 90s with like music artists crossing over into film. Like that happened a lot in the 50s, right? And it happens a lot now, but I feel like it didn't happen quite as often then, so. That's true. I think you are also just having a lot more crossover with like stage actors and movie actors because like i'm thinking of like benedict cumberbatch who doesn't yeah. sing as far as i know but he does stage yeah and then like what's his name oh my gosh jean valjean 
from the movie. Oh, um, Hugh Jackman. Yes, Hugh Jackman has done a lot of stage productions, including musicals. Yeah, that's true. And and that does, because like Kristen Chenoweth was primarily a stage actress as well, but she is, people know who she is just in the collective consciousness because she's also done movies. So yeah, I think you're right. That they're Menzel too, especially after Frozen. Yeah, after Frozen, she became kind of a household name. When I know that Wicked, for both of those actresses, kind of launched them a little bit more out into space, kind of like Hamilton did for a lot of those actors, yes. just because so popular beyond just theater circles. Um, but but yes, I think there is a lot more crossover with that. Okay, so talking about the cast as well, so. Robbie Benson for The Beast. Here are some actors who were considered and who they kind of wanted for The Beast. Val Kilmer, Mandy Mandy Patinkin, and Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne? I know. That's what I thought, too. I was like, what? You're going to have Cowboy Curtis? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I know that Lawrence Fishburne, I feel like a lot of people think of him as, as, as Mobius. Yeah, they do. I always think of him as Cowboy Curtis. But I mean, I can kind of see, I guess, those. But I guess Robbie Benson got chosen for the voice because everybody else was being kind of their words, fee-fi-fo-fum about the whole thing and were being like Mm. really gruff. But that he was warm enough like he had a rougher voice but he was warm enough that you could hear the prince underneath is what they said yeah and so well, that, that makes sense. sense yeah i really really like um i don't know if this is the, like the original cast or the revival cast or what of beauty and the beast um the guy who plays beast i can't think of his name terrence man yes terrence man my first yeah. introduction to terrence man was on the dresden files tv show which was horrible and only lasted really? a season yeah and then i found out that he was the voice of beast because i recognized his voice after that <laughs> but there's a song in the musical that's not in the movie um called if she could love me and that's one of my favorite songs yeah. oh if i could love her yeah um me too. i love that song but that is a song where i feel like it's important that you like can hear the beast as like a human. Yes, absolutely. And I, I am totally a fan of Terrence Mann. He's also on the Scarlet Pimpernel soundtrack and he's awesome. And that oh, too. He is. Falcon in the dive. Yeah. That he does, which is like, he's I really good. Know the one song from that, which is the, the clothes make the man one. Whatever oh, called. I love that song so much. And I only know because you you put it on like a CD for me. Because <laughs> it's amazing. When we used to make CDs instead of just sending each other Amazon music yes. reps. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Other voicing things. So for Cogsworth, they actually wanted John Cleese to do that, but he turned it down to do an American tale, Five Goes West. Bummer. No, and I'm like, Whatever. man, I think you regret that now. <laughs> uh, Will loves American Tale, but I'm just like, I can't that do it. I'm pretty sure, I think it's a Don Bluth movie. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, and that's funny that you say that Will loves it because Brett really loves it too, and they're the same age. So, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> a forty-year-old thing. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, 
Okay, and then they also wanted to get Julie Andrews for Mrs. Potts. They didn't say why she didn't do it, just that eventually it went to Angela Lansbury instead. I don't know. I, I I mean, I know that it's always hard to imagine, right, other actors in that role once it's become yeah. so, like, iconic. But yeah. I feel like Angela Lansbury does a good job because she can be tender and also, like, a tad crazy, which I kind of feel like works for Mrs. Potts. Yeah, I think she also just sounds more motherly. Yes, than she does. does. And so I think that that really helps the role. Yeah. Um, okay, so as we've already talked about a little bit, so this was made into a Broadway musical and it ran from 1994 to 2007, which is a pretty good run. Um, most musicals don't make it past like a year. It was the first of the Disney musicals uh so now there are a oh, bunch was it really it was yes so now you have a ton you've got things like the lion king which is also pretty awesome amazing um, yeah you've got um hunchback of notre dame and mary poppins amazing. i haven't seen either of those <laughs> But, I gotta say, like, I really appreciate Disney musicals because I think they do an absolutely phenomenal job of writing do. original music in addition yeah. to already iconic songs. And the original music is always so good. Hunchback's got great music. Little Mermaid has great music. Lion King is great. It's all mm -hmm. really good. And production value is like top notch. And may I say that there is also a Disney produced musical that is not one of their actual movies and Elton John wrote the music for it and it's Aida which is based on the opera of the same name and it is fantastic you should definitely hmm. check it out okay so this movie also won or it won for the Oscar for best original score and best original song um for the Beauty and the Beast yeah yeah Beauty and uh -huh. I don't know yeah. what any of these songs are called what's wrong with me I keep saying all the wrong <laughs> song names <laughs> That's okay. Um, it won the Golden Globe for Best Picture Musical or Comedy, which is the first animated movie ever to win that title. That seems like a really broad category. It does, doesn't it? But, I mean, Best Picture is a super broad category, right? But this narrows it down because they have drama and then they have musical or comedy um, in the Golden Globes, so they kind of narrow it a little bit. Um, it was also the very first animated film to ever be nominated for Best Picture uh, for an Oscar. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so it got a lot of acclaim. Um, it grossed about $331 million on a $25 million budget. Um, it got a lot of acclaim for the love story, for the animation, especially the ballroom scene um, and the music, because that was like one of the first times that computer animation was used like that. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I mean, now we watch it and we're like, wow, this is very obviously computer animated. <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't look real. But for then, it was really kind of revolutionary. You don't even um, notice it that much, though, honestly, because the biggest scene where they use that is the ballroom scene. Yes. Yeah. And, it's only the ballroom scene where you really see. Yeah. And unless you're really paying attention, like, I think, I think they did a good job back then of not using it for like obvious assets like they did yeah. this in hunchback for the crowd during the topsy-turvy scene and unless yeah. you're like specifically looking at the crowd you'd never notice yeah no i agree um okay in 2002 the film was selected for preservation in the u.s national film registry by the library of congress for being culturally historically or aesthetically significant 
Okay. Um, so Disney, the Disney company actually first attempted to animate this movie in the 1930s and then in the 1950s, but they were unsuccessful because it was really hard for the story artists to like figure out what was going to happen. Um, but they decided to try again after the success of The Little Mermaid. And it was originally conceived as a non-musical period drama, but that really fast got scrapped and changed into boring. Yeah, I'm sure, especially after Little Mermaid, right? Yeah. And then just a couple more really interesting little things. So the Beast, if you've ever wondered, like, how they came up with his look, here you go. So he has the head and horns of a bison, the arms and body of a bear, the eyebrows of a gorilla, which I thought was really random. Very specific. (laughs) The teeth of a lion, the tusks of a boar, and the legs and tail of a wolf. Okay. So I, and apparently they like experimented with all kinds of other animals and like insects and stuff before they came up with this design. So I thought it was interesting that they just decided to combine a bunch of stuff, probably because they were like, well, we need it to look realish, but we need it to look unlike anything that people have seen, like we can't turn him into a lion and we don't want him to be too scary, you know? Yeah. This reminds me of... Um, the other day, I was trying to look at, like, cool stuff to do, like, around where I live, just because I want to explore the area more. And I found on Atlas Obscura this thing that I've seen before, but I never knew what it was called. And it's at the State Fair of Texas. And I, I know you've seen it before. It's that weird goat statue fountain thing. Yeah. Yes. And so <laughs> you have to look it up to see what it looks like. But it's called the Woofus. It has a name, which I didn't know, <laughs> but this is, but it's essentially this, it's a mashup of animals, right? And it's, but this, in this case, it's a mashup of, um, animal or Texas livestock, I guess. So including like longhorns, sheep, uh, turkeys and like a couple other things. And so that's why it's as weird looking as it is, but it's also just done in this very weird stocky, like art deco style because that whole area was built them. <laughs> But I also, like, just kind of accidentally found out this, like, absolutely fascinating piece of information about it, which is that it was built in the 30s when the whole area was built. But then not long after that, it was damaged and it was taken down for repair and then it got lost. And so they built a new one. But I guess there's, like, this conspiracy theory that there was, like, a religious group who thought it was demonic and so they destroyed it. And that's like I like I love it even more now. It's like my favorite thing because it's just in this obscure <laughs> corner in like the animal showcase area, like at the at the the fair park area. And so it's just so funny. But you have to look it up to see what it looks like because it's bizarre. But that's yeah. what that makes me think of. Yeah, that is interesting when people do stuff like that because it and that's been happening forever. Because you've got things like griffins, right? Yeah. Um, and like the sphinx and just all kinds of things like all in um mythology of all sorts they've been combining beasts forever so it's i mean just following in that i guess platypus (laughs) (laughs) seriously um okay this was my favorite little tidbit actually was that the animator for Gaston was pressed by the director to make Gaston handsome in contrast to the regular disney villain Um, And that the animator had a really hard time with that at first. 
Like, I don't know if he had a hard time conceiving of what he should look like, because that doesn't seem like it would be too hard. Or if it was just a hard time wrapping his brain around making the villain handsome um, in this kind of a movie, because you usually see that. They're usually ugly or really old or um, have some other quality about them that is disconcerting, right? Yeah. But Gaston is not. And I think that that's actually a big brilliance of the movie mm-hmm. is that the is ugly. Yeah. And, and he seems like he might be the villain at the beginning because he's cranky and mean, but it turns out that he's just had some circumstances in his life and he just needs somebody to like him, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and it'd be nice to him. Whereas Gaston at first just seems like he's an idiot. He just seems narcissistic and yeah. unthinking, but it turns out at the end that he really is kind of evil. Um, and just has really bad motives and and stuff. And so I I really think that that was a brilliant call. I agree. I mean, right, because the whole movie is about what's on the inside. And I mean, because that's even what the fairy tale aspect, like at the very beginning is, you know, it's like mm-hmm. because the woman was ugly. And so he didn't let her in. Yes, exactly. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the scene where the food shows up. So you guys, you know, this scene. Just sing the song. <laughs> <laughs> so Belle gets hungry after a day of defying the beast and saying, no, I'm not going to eat. And, you know, just being, if I were in prison, I would never refuse the food just because I was mad. Like yeah. I would never do that. <laughs> If I did, it would be one meal and I would regret it as soon as they walked away. I'd be like, no, come back. But anyway, so she's wandering around the castle and she encounters the servants who have been turned into household objects, which I think is a really interesting choice. Apparently, there was a 1946, I want to say, French movie of Beauty and the Beast, and they were the first ones to introduce this idea of the servants having still being there and having been turned into these household objects and so disney took it directly from that movie interesting yeah um and i i just think it's i i don't know i thought that was an interesting choice um first of all to include them in the curse like they didn't do anything wrong and yeah that's second of all, yeah just to make them household objects like it it's obviously just a device for the movie to make it kind of fun and different and interesting. Cause otherwise it makes no sense. And I feel like it's particularly cool. <laughs> like, Yeah, that's true. Um, but anyway, so Lumiere, the candlestick leads the dining room and all of the other, I, I mean, mostly just the dining things, the forks and the spoons and the napkins and all those things, all of which are alive. Honestly, is- how- who are these people? Like, I know. <laughs> how were there so many people working the castle? Because there's at least a hundred spoons, right? Like just the spoons. Yeah. yeah. No, I told. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but um, that being said, we only see them in this number, really. Like yes. they're just there because it looks cool. But they feed her this amazing feast while performing a spectacular musical number as if they have been practicing this, waiting for somebody to come. What else are you going to do for the past 21 years? Somebody had a brilliant idea. One of the spoons was like, I'm going to write a musical. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I, I honestly, I feel like it was Lumiere. I feel like it he was, was just sitting around and was like, you know what this castle needs? Drama. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he gave himself the starring role. Yes. Um, it's very Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Um, except much bigger and more typical musical theater than Lin-Manuel Miranda, yes. I think would probably ever do. Um, but anyway, so it is a fun number. I think it's probably the most well-known song in this whole show. Um, and there is a restaurant at Disneyland or Disney World that is named after this. It's called Be Our Guest. Which is amazing. Um, it is amazing. It has like themed rooms so you can eat in the ballroom or you can eat in the west wing which is like oh, all scary and has lightning and, stuff. and i couldn't eat in there because my kids were scared <laughs> oh you <laughs> couldn't we ate no, in there i know but we couldn't because bryce got scared and so brett and i went out into the ballroom area with him and ate in there instead and that was oh, kind of sad. funny that's sad yeah it's cool though because they have like the rose and like petals will fall every once in a while and they have the portrait of like like the ripped portrait of prince adam and it will like change periodically yeah. in the beast and there's like lightning and stuff it's really cool it is really cool um and yeah so go do that if you have a chance to because it's pretty awesome and the food is not bad it is it's not bad i mean it's disney right so it's overly priced and mm -hmm. not amazing in most cases, although you can find some really good stuff, but it's just typical food. But there is some really interesting stuff that you can't get anywhere else in the park um, yeah. there. A pretty good fresh dip. That's true. Okay. So the food here is acting as comfort food, um, but in a different way than what you normally see because this is probably stuff that she does not eat at home because she is a peasant right yeah. she's not rich she's not popular and so she's probably eating much more simple food but this is like something that they have done to impress her and to welcome her and to make her feel like this is her home when she's in a really horrible scary situation um, and so, you know, bravo to the spoons for doing that. Um, but yeah, and they, they parade all of this stuff in front of her. And you guys can probably sing it. Beef ragu, souffle, pie, I'm putting on the <laughs> And I just, I just watched this again. And she actually doesn't try the cheese souffle. But the gray stuff, you know, there's a little plate of hors d'oeuvres and he says, try the gray stuff. It's delicious. And you they just, that with a French accent. I know I can't help <laughs> it. I didn't just like him in his fake French accent. <laughs> um, anyway, so they, they are, they're using food as a way to help her because they see what a terrible situation she's in. They see that the beast is cranky. They know he is. And even though they are pretty loyal to him, um, they know that he can be mean and that she is scared. And so I love that they are trying to welcome her. And I like this because this is exactly what I would do. They'd be like, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I just lost my dad. I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again. And I'd be like, gray stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What about the food? Um, so yeah, that, that's really what it is for, uh, the scene in this movie it's you guys all know it so it's not like we're giving you anything super amazingly 
nuanced. It is what it is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> 90% of our food, I think, ends up being comfort food. <laughs> it does. But you know what? That's so interesting because that that tells me that that is how food is seen, right? That's yeah. That's how food is used a lot of the time. And I think that that's... I don't think that's a bad thing, um, but we do see it used in different ways, um, mm -hmm. offering comfort in different ways. Well, and I think the fact that people view it like that so often allows for the variance where people use it as a bribe or they use it to punish or, you know, and so it, it creates an interesting parallel I guess yeah well it's it's um it allows for those things to be more poignant I guess because when it's mostly used for comfort and people can can like relate to that and be like oh yeah that sounds awesome oh yes I love to curl up with this when I'm feeling sad or whatever then when you see things like for example, because we will never do this on the podcast in Les Mis, when Valjean gets put into prison for 20 years because he stole a loaf of bread, yeah. you know, something that is needed for life, something that would have been comforting for his family, um, he he's punished for it hugely and it's just bread. And so I think that that, that helps us to see that as particularly horrendous because it's food, it's bread, right. it should be good and comforting, you know? Um, especially because it's a bread, which we've talked about is like yeah. the essential. Yeah, it absolutely is. Okay. So let's talk about, we're going to talk about both, uh, souffle and the gray stuff. Um, so cheese souffle and souffles in particular, just as a whole, because they can be, uh, savory or sweet. They can have a lot of different kinds of flavors, but they are just like an egg yolk base with folded egg whites. So you whip the egg whites until they have stiff peaks and they've grown in volume. Egg whites, eggs are amazing. They are really, really cool. Um, but when you whip egg whites, I'm sure you probably know this, they get really big and really fluffy and light and you're essentially just whipping air into them. And it's that air that makes the souffle rise. There's no like baking powder or yeast or anything in here at all. So souffle, if you've never had it, it really just is kind of like an airy foamy thing. <laughs> like, yeah, I was kind of thinking it's like really, really fluffy scrambled eggs almost. Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't really necessarily taste like eggs, but it is. It's like a really, really fluffy quiche without a crust. Yeah. Um, and you, and you don't usually put like stuff in it, like big pieces, like mushrooms or whatever, like you would in a quiche, um, because it's too light for that. It would mess with the puffing. So the name comes from the French verb souffle, which means to puff or <laughs> to inflate, <laughs> which is exactly what it does. If you've ever seen a souffle cook, it does. It just, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you have to eat it hot because if you don't, then it's just going to fall. And then it's more dense and it doesn't work as well that's what's just great that. about french cooking is you can always tell what's going on by what they call it souffle to puff brulee to torch you know to burr or burr to butter yes that is a really nice thing about french cooking because to us it sounds fancy but to them they're like well duh <laughs> yeah 
Um, okay, so these made their first appearance in like the 1740s in a restaurant or not in a restaurant in um, like a cookbook. And then the 1780s was the first time it was served in a restaurant, but they were really perfected in the mid 1800s because ovens changed. So instead of being heated by coal, by coal, they were then starting to be heated by drafts of air, which made a huge difference in the ability of the souffle to rise. And then it was a special occasion dessert on really fancy like menus, like at the Waldorf um, and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the way from the early 1900s until the mid 20th century. Like it had a really long reign. Yeah. Usually food fads go a whole lot faster than that. They can be very fussy. They can be difficult to make because the egg whites are the only thing making it rise if you don't whip them exactly right and you don't fold them in really gently and stuff, it can come out really dense. And they won't rise if they're in a bowl that has even a little bit of grease in it. Like it's a whole thing. They, they are, they can be very tricky. Um, okay. And since we have two to talk about, that's all I've got for cheese souffle. But I do want to talk about the gray stuff a bit because the gray stuff that we made and the gray stuff that is likely what's in the movie are not the same. We cheated. Well, okay, but we didn't cheat, and I will explain that in a minute. What it probably was in the movie, especially since it was on a plate of hors d'oeuvres, is pate. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, pate is a French word that means, like, paste. So, there they go again. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. You're right on the nose there. Um, so, it can be like a loaf or like a pie or something, but mostly it's like a terrine, which is just kind of like a shaped moussey like mold. A jello right? mold? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's filled with force meat, which is like meat that has been ground and sieved together with maybe some spices and stuff. And they can be smooth or uh, have chunks. Usually I feel like we see it smooth, right? But yeah, it's like one that you've probably heard of is foie gras. That's yeah. a very common one that you see. And it's made from fatty goose livers. That does not sound great to me. Um, it is often served on bread for breakfast or on a cracker for like an appetizer. And it was, it was big because it preserved the meat. It was a meat preservation. And that's how we get a lot of our stuff actually is because of preservation needs when there wasn't refrigeration and stuff. Yeah. It's one um, of those like acquired taste delicacy things like caviar that rich yeah. people pretend they like, but doesn't actually taste good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, it is, especially here in America, it is considered a delicacy it is something that costs a lot of money um and that you get in you pay you know 50 bucks for and you get like a teaspoon of yeah um it yeah exactly uh and it is though a mainstay of the french diet even today 25 percent of french people eat pate once a week and 68 percent eat it at least once a month that's so funny so, because I have tried it once in my life in culinary school. And if it had not been for culinary school, I'm not sure I ever would have tried it. 
Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, that's in France. It's probably much more readily available in France, whereas here it really does only show up on really fancy menus. Well, that's what I'm saying is just, it's interesting to see that it's like much more common, you know, there. Yeah. Um, Yes. So that is what pate and the gray stuff probably actually is, but that is not what we made because we used the recipe that Disney put out and it's the recipe that they use in Be Our Guest, the restaurant, um, which is basically like putting in Cool Whip and Oreos. <laughs> yeah, it really that's That's about it. That's really all it is. Um, so I, I'm curious, though, as to why they decided to make it a dessert rather than like an appetizer um, or something. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I'm wondering if it's just because that's just a part that people remember is try the gray stuff. It's delicious. And then everyone was always, oh, but what is it? And so I think if they had just made it an appetizer, it might have gotten lost a little bit versus Mm -hmm. a dessert. And I think it came out right at the height of like cupcake culture. Do you remember when like, you know, sprinkles opened and then there were like 10,000 boutique gourmet cupcake places and they all sucked but everybody was still excited about them like i think it was kind of right there and so i think at first they it was a gray stuff cupcake right oh okay i think now it's just like you get a little cookie like thing with it like piled on top yeah with it piped on top and made pretty you're probably right that they didn't want it to get lost because it seems like that's the thing that everybody wants to try the gray stuff right but they weren't gonna like serve you pate at disney world yeah Um, i just think if anybody's remembering anything specific from the song like mm -hmm. you know because there's gonna be plenty of people who know all the you know beef ragu and all that crap but i think if you're only gonna remember one thing it's the gray stuff because nobody knew what it was, which yeah. is also indicative of how rare it is here in America. Because yeah. none of the kids and even a lot of adults were like, what is the gray stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But it's um, also, he was, like you were saying, it's not stuff she would eat, it's stuff he would eat, yeah. right? And so it yeah. was like, even in France, it's like, it was like royalty that was eating pate. That's true, actually. And the fact that he calls it gray stuff instead of try the pate, you know, is like yeah. also... Like- that she's, she might not is. know what it is, yeah. you know? So she, he's like, just try it. I Trust me. It's really good. Yeah. But yeah, so we decided to be authentic to the movie that we chose and make the actual Disney gray stuff. Spoiler alert, my gray stuff was brown. <laughs> <laughs> not gray. Um, and Christine, yours wasn't super gray either. Like it looks like in the picture on the Disney website. More like, gray than yours. Yeah, more I'm wondering, they might add a little bit of food coloring just to give it the exact right. Maybe color. some white food coloring to help lighten it up yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay. So with that, it is time for us to try our cheese souffle and our gray stuff. Okay. So Christine is going to tell us what we have rated for time for the souffle. Okay, so for our cheese souffle, for time, I'm rating it trois baguettes. And the reason we're giving three is because there are 
multiple components you have to have going at once but that point is that you can have them going at once you need to do some stuff on the stove you need to whip some egg whites you need to be mixing some stuff and then it has to bake but a lot of that stuff you can be doing at once and it's not hard like you can like it's not hard to manage your time when handling all of the components yes correct um and then okay so for ease we are awarding only un baguette just a single baguette because although it is easy to manage your time it is technically difficult and by technically i don't mean it like you would say well technically i mean like it there are techniques in here that can be difficult particularly if you are um, a beginner in the kitchen um it does require cooking with cream on the stove and that can be hard not to burn um, if you're not used to it. Whipping the egg whites is a whole thing in and of itself because like Christine said, you can't have any fat in the bowl or it won't work right. Um, you have to not under whip them but also not over whip them and it's kind Maybe of hard. temperature. Yes, it, it's hard to uh at first get the texture right and then you have to also fold the whites in like i'm i'm getting a schitt's creek vibes. i know i was <laughs> say fold one more time do i fold it in half yeah <laughs> but yes you do have to fold in the egg whites and it's particularly important when you're folding in cheese i feel like that's a little different you know um because you're just trying to be gentle with it, but the egg whites are very tricky because if you don't really truly fold them in and be really gentle, you will not get the rise that you are hoping for. And they will not be airy little eggs. They will be dense, gross little eggs. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically folding just means don't whip it in. Just be careful with your mixing. Cause if you go in there and like, whap, 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 then it's all the air is gonna, you're gonna pop all the bubbles and all the air is gonna disappear. So some of them will pop. It has to in order to to mix it in, but you just have to go very slowly and methodically instead of mixing hard like a lot of people would immediately. Um, so yeah, so ease, only one baguette. And then Christine, what did we award for taste? So for taste, we ordered this de baguette. So the reason we went for this is because we feel like there's not a ton of flavor um considering that you've got like a lot of mustard and cheese and some other things in it um i felt like mine did taste very eggy you said that yours didn't but i felt like there was a lot of egg flavor and i'm just not a huge egg fan to begin with i'm very picky about my eggs but i think the biggest problem is that it there's just not a lot of flavor it's it's <laughs> Most very air. like subtle yeah and one note and so it is it's just it's a big air flavor and i think the texture as well like we're not big fans of like the really airy egg texture like ashley was saying she'd prefer to just eat like a quiche and i think that yeah, for sure. and quiches are a lot more dense um but i like easier them to make. yeah definitely easier to make um okay so there you go for the souffle now for the gray stuff so for the gray stuff, we awarded trois baguettes for time. Uh, literally, guys, it is instant jello pudding. And 
Cool Whip. So the only thing you have to do is make sure you take your Cool Whip out in the morning so it's not frozen when you try to do it. And you crush some Oreos and mix it in there. It takes no time at all. It's really easy. Um, like as far as like, there's not a whole lot of components. You like mix up your pudding and while it's firming up, you crush your Oreos and that's like all the time that it takes. So that's it. And then for ease, Christine, what are we awarding? Uh, freeze, we are awarding trois baguettes and same thing. I mean, it's, it's like throw it in a bowl and go. Um, and then for taste, we have awarded deux baguettes. Sorry, you don't get our specialness. Um, <laughs> and we awarded uh, only two because we felt like it was a little bit too much, like too much of one thing. We both feel like it's really yummy when you take maybe one or two bites. But if you go beyond that, we're kind of, we were kind of like, Ugh, okay, done with this. It was a little cloying the texture i feel like maybe wasn't as fluffy as it's supposed to be no it's the cool whip it gives it almost like a rubbery texture yeah which is very strange for pudding yeah so i wonder if like real whipped cream would be better if that would change it at all the texture mm. um or what but obviously this recipe was put out it, it changed from an industrial recipe where they yes. are making it tons and tons of it at a time and they're not using the same brands and they're not using cool whip (laughs) yeah no they've got their own things that they're using they've just adapted their recipe to be done in a home kitchen so in the pictures on the disney website it is extremely fluffy and i remember it being pretty fluffy this is not fluffy i also remember Um, it being really good and i don't feel like this was as good I don't think so either. I don't think it was as good. And so, yeah, we, we felt like we didn't put in the Disney recipe. It does call for like a shortbread cookie on the bottom or a sugar cookie on the bottom of it. And then you like pipe it on and pile it high. And then you have sugar pearls on top to make it look pretty. But we also figured that the cookie and the sugar pearls are actually pretty necessary. And we didn't use it because I was like, that's eh, not necessary. We just want the gray stuff. But it really is because you need some variation in the texture in particular. But also, I think in the flavor, having that crunch of just sugar or the cookie flavor would have improved it as well. So for that reason, we gave it only to baguette. Yeah. Okay. So that is all that we have for you today for Beauty and the Beast. So please... Check out our website, which is thebittenwordpodcast.weebly.com to see pictures, to get the recipe, um, and to see all of the other things that we have been making. You can also see pictures and interact with us on Twitter at The Bitten Pod and on Instagram at The Bitten Word Podcast. And you also can email us if you if you are so inclined, at thebittenwordpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you are enjoying the show, we would really appreciate it if you would go and rate us, and particularly if you would leave a review. Uh, If you do leave a review, we may read it here on the podcast, and you can get your name out here, which is kind of fun, right? And also, please join us next week because we're going there, guys. Yeah. We're going to talk about Encanto. Colombia. 
And we are going to be making arepas con queso with my amazing Spanish accent. After we uh-huh. totally ripped on Lin-Manuel Brand. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I think he would take it okay. <laughs> I I love Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Okay, so we like both, it was we both kind of, really like him. It was it was in jest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd be mad. I think he'd be okay. Um, so yes. Hey, so please join us next week for that. And until then, happy watching and be our guest. Be our guest. Be our guest. <laughs>